As we have followed Luke's history of the early church through the book of Acts, we now arrive at the very edge of a momentous, unprecedented event. For the first time since God called Abraham, two ununitable groups will be joined together as equals. And those two groups are Gentile and Jew. It's difficult for us today to understand how deep and how, how profound the division was between these two groups. How much animosity, how, how, how high and profound the barrier was. It doesn't do it justice, but maybe in our current context here, we could say it would be similar to the organized fan base. So the torcidas organizadas of Palmeiras and Corinthians joining together for a time of fellowship and communion. Uh, confraternização at the end of the year. You know, that, even that doesn't do it justice, but that might give us a taste of how, how great the separation was, how great the animus, how great the bitterness, how great the division between Gentile and Jew in the ancient Near East. And to those two groups, union would have been anathema and unimaginable, but not in the plan and power of God. Last week, I used the image of a confluence of rivers to describe the joining of these peoples. A confluence is the geographical location at which two rivers run into each other and become one. Together, they're formed into a bigger, stronger, and deeper flow. Let's continue to think about these two groups, Jew and Gentile, as rivers, the Jewish river and the Gentile river. Last week, we watched as these parallel rivers were turned by the power and work of God toward each other. And that first turning happened through two different visions that God gave to two different men in two different cities. Cornelius, a Roman centurion, Gentile, uncircumcised, in the Gentile city of Caesarea, Peter, an apostle, a Jew from birth, a keeper of the law of Moses, the leader of the church, circumcised Jewish in the city of Joppa. And with those two visions, God begins to turn those rivers and aim them toward a meeting point. This morning, we could say that they're now millimeters apart, just waiting for the finger of God to poke through the paper-thin strip of land that separates them. I divided this account into four scenes. The first two scenes we covered last week. The first scene was called setting the stage and that had to do with the two visions that were given. And then the second scene was the meeting. Peter leaves Joppa, obeying what God has called him to do, travels to Caesarea, and then again in an unthinkable step, he accepts Cornelius' invitation to enter the home of a Gentile, something that a faithful Jew would never have done prior to this moment in history. And there they meet face to face. Today we're going to cover the final two scenes, and I call these scenes the teaching and 
the joining. So I'll read the account of the teaching and the joining from Acts chapter 10. I'll begin with verse 34. Now, remember the immediate context. Peter has entered Cornelius' home and he has said, God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Now he's about to share the message, the reason that God has brought him to Caesarea. And it's also worth noting and remembering Cornelius's faith because it says that his house is full. He has invited all his family, his extended family, and other God-fearers. So there was a large group of people. And he's called these people together to hear a man that he does not know share a message with which he is unfamiliar. And that testifies to Cornelius' faith. He has no doubt that it has been the power of God that has spoken to him that has brought about this meeting. So then Peter begins to share his message. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. By us, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Under the heading of the teaching, which is the third scene, under that heading, I want to draw our attention to three points. The first of those points is Peter's confession. The first phrase that Peter utters as he addresses all these people gathered in Cornelius' home is a tacit admission that for all his life he had believed something wrong. He says, now I realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, 
but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Peter now realizes this. What did he think before? That God did have a favorite. That the Jewish nation was God's favorite. And that anyone who wanted to come to God had to first become a Jew. In other words, that Judaism was the only way to God. Now, I want to be clear about something. God had shown great favor to the Hebrew nation, to the Jews. He had. He called them his chosen people. But here's the issue and here's the question. Chosen for what purpose? Had they been chosen to be the receptacle of God's grace and to hold that for themselves only? Or were they chosen and honored by God to be the conduit through whom God was going to show himself to the whole world, to every other nation as well? Just yesterday, we had a, a little bit of an argument that surfaced in our family. And um, it, had, it, it was based on interaction between my two sons. And I'm not going to use their name. I'm not going to say which one was on what, which side of the argument. But as you all look over at them, you know the two I'm talking about, but you're still not going to know which one it is. So the, the, the issue surfaced somewhat by um, one son commenting that his mother, Julie, showed favoritism to the other son because she used to send candy in that other son's lunch when they went to school and that the son, the speaking son, was not given that candy. Well, then the response was, well, hang on a minute. I gave your brother two. I, whether they were Snickers or M&M's package or whatever, I gave him two and he was supposed to give one of them to you. Oh, well, I never got one. <laughs> then the other son responds, I was supposed to share. What? I didn't know that I was supposed to share them. I thought mom loved me more. No, he didn't really say that. But he said, I, I didn't know I was supposed to share with my brother. Now, there are differing versions of this story, but that's an outsider's perspective on what happened. Here's the point. The, the one son was given two, why? So that he could share, not so that he could hold on to greedily. Um, in the same way, the Jewish nation was granted the favor of God to receive God's revelation at Mount Sinai through the Mosaic Law so that they would become sharers of his truth, of his presence to other nations. But as we know, historically that had not happened. Over the course of centuries, the understanding had come to be God has blessed us, his presence is with us, and it is for us to hold on to. So if anyone wants to come to God, they have to come join us, and then they can come to God. Now, this joining of the two rivers, it should not have been a surprise to Peter. It shouldn't have been. Beginning with Abraham, God revealed his plan to show himself to all nations. That's one of the promises that Abraham received, right? All 
nations will be blessed through you. The Old Testament prophets consistently point to the outpouring of God's presence and love to Gentile nations as well. And finally, Peter heard Jesus on at least two occasions talk specifically about this. Not just talk about it, but commission Peter along with his fellow disciples to carry that plan out. In Matthew 28, well, the verses that we call the Great Commission, Jesus says to Peter and his fellow disciples that they are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus taught. So Peter has heard this already and then it's re-emphasized by Jesus in Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But for Peter, it takes this extraordinary vision for him to understand that God's grace is offered to all people, to all who may come directly to him in holy fear. Now, it's very easy to pick on Peter. It's always easy to pick on Peter in the scripture, isn't it? Oh, Peter... You just never get it right. You're cutting off people's ears. You know, you can't even use a sword right. You know, you aim at someone's head, you cut off their ear. You start walking on the water, you lose faith and you sink. You make this great proclamation about who Jesus is and with the next breath, Jesus has to turn around to you and say, get behind me, Satan, because you're, you're not speaking the truth of God. Peter is the one who stands up and says, God, even if all of, my other dis- of your other disciples fall away, I will never leave you. And just a few hours later, he denies him three times. Oh, you're, you're so pathetic. It's easy to do that. But I think we need to see ourselves in Peter, and I want us to briefly turn around and look at ourselves and think and consider, what are the truths of Scripture that we resist. I don't think Peter was consciously resisting the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles, but it was so much a part of his history and his structure of belief, he wasn't even aware of it. And I think this is often true for us. What, what, what are truths that we know in Scripture but to which we have not surrendered and which we have not embraced. And I know that probably first our minds go to all the negative things. Let me suggest something positive, something my family and I have actually been talking about in the recent weeks. What about God's love? We know, right, that God is love and that he loves us. Like that's up here in our brains. But do we really live as though we are under the banner of God's love and acceptance? Or do we have a false image of God as a harsh, irritated, disappointed deity? Because that's not how God has revealed himself to his daughters and to his sons. 
Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do, do we accept that God loves us unconditionally as we are? I only use that as an example. So that we would stop harassing Peter in our hearts and use the opportunity to consider where are we resistant to something that to others may seem so obvious in Scripture, but we have hardened ourselves to it. The second point under the heading of the teaching is Jesus himself. As soon as Peter confesses his resistance and his error, he turns the focus fully on Jesus. Now, Luke has given us a summary of Peter's sermon. All the sermons and acts are summaries. Lest you somehow think, oh man, I wish we had Peter preaching for us because all his sermons were really short. It's a summary. But nonetheless, in the summary, Luke makes sure to include what Peter says about Jesus' work on earth, his death, his resurrection, his judgment, and his forgiveness. This is of extreme and supreme importance because the one single unifying factor between these two rivers, the only thing powerful enough and pure enough to reconcile them together into the church is Jesus Christ. It is only Jesus. There is nothing else that will unify them or that can unify them. Now there's a profound implication here. The emphasis that Peter puts on the work and person of Jesus cannot be overstated. In fact, this passage ends with all these people being baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. But Cornelius was a good guy. He was a good man. Luke himself says that he was a God-fearer that he was obedient, that he prayed, that he ministered to the poor. He had a great reputation. So isn't that enough for Cornelius? No, it's not. Cornelius and his family needed to meet Jesus. When Jesus incarnated, when he entered the world as a baby through the womb of a woman, God provided a fuller revelation of himself to the world. Jesus was not a new God, but he came as the full revelation of the Godhead. So after Christ, after his birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, God had been more fully revealed. So in order to believe in God, one must then believe in Christ because he's the revelation of God. Have you ever pulled up an app on your phone that you need to use and you get some kind of message that says, 
In order to continue using this app, you need to update it. Maybe it's your banking app. You open your bank and say, oh, I have to update it. But what would happen if I say, look, I am sick and tired of this update, update, update business. I have the bank account. I have the app. Why do they keep insisting? Why does Motorola or Apple or whatever company or Itaú or Bradesco or whoever, why do they keep insisting that I have to update, update? I don't want any more updates. I have the original that's good enough for me. Except it's not. You can have that attitude, but you'll never be able to use the app. Now, I, please, please, please hear me. Jesus was not just an update to God. But he was the full revelation of who God is. So, when someone uses the word God, but they're not including Jesus Christ in that word, then they're not talking about the same God of the Bible. And they're not talking about the God we worship. This is why the Apostle John, in his first epistle, writes, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So no one can say, I don't believe in Jesus, but I do believe in God. Why is that logically impossible? Because God revealed himself in Jesus. God said, this is me. Jesus is me. So anyone who says, I reject Jesus, God says, you're rejecting me. Because I have shown the fullness of who I am in my son. Cornelius and all of his family and his friends needed to know Jesus. Because in Christ dwelt the fullness of God. It's in Jesus that we encounter God as Redeemer. It's in Jesus that we encounter God as the one who sacrifices himself to pay for our sins. It's in Jesus that we find the atonement for sin. It's in Jesus that, we, that God reveals himself as being relational, as being communal. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfectly united together as one God. So without Christ, we do not have God. And notice how, how God blesses Cornelius. As I said, the fact that Cornelius was a God-fearer was not enough. He might have been on the right track, but it wasn't enough, and he hadn't finished his journey yet. And what we see in this passage is the fulfillment of one of God's promises through his prophet Jeremiah. I think it's a verse that we love to quote, Jeremiah 29, 13, you will find me if you seek me, if you seek me with all your heart. Or rather, if you seek me, you will find me if you seek me with all your heart. And this is an example of God fulfilling that, that prophecy. Cornelius was seeking God. He had sought God. He feared God. He prayed to the amount of knowledge that he had. He was being faithful. And then God came in and said, because you are seeking, I will reveal. And he sets all these things in motion so that Peter would come and share Jesus. In all of this, remember this point, Jesus is the only unifier. 
It is by faith in him alone that a person is joined into the river of the church regardless of their nationality, race, or background. All right, let's move on to the third point under the teaching. The third point, surprise, surprise, is witness. We continue to hear this emphasis. We are witnesses, we are witnesses, we are witnesses. Peter says to Cornelius, I saw all these things. Everything I'm talking about, Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, I saw them. I heard his teaching. I am a witness. This was my experience. And Peter adds another little statement that might not mean too much to us now. But in context, it did. He said, I ate and drank with Jesus after his resurrection. In the ancient Near Eastern context, there was a belief that one of the ways you could identify whether an apparition was a real person or an, or an angel or spirit or ghost or vision was if they could eat because a spirit or an angel or a ghost would not be able to eat physical food. Jesus even affirms this to his disciples. You remember one time after his resurrection, he appears to his disciples and he's, they're shocked and they can't believe it's really him and he's like, give me something to eat. Man, if I could prove my identity by eating, I would love that. <laughs> I would be so real. But you know what? Jesus understands this about their culture. And so he says, give me something to eat. Peter is affirming it too. With a Roman, with a Gentile, as well as a Jewish culture, he's saying, I sat with him. I, I watched him die I was at the tomb where he was buried and it was empty. And after that, I ate and drank with him. I saw him put food into his mouth, chew and swallow. I saw him drink. He was alive. He was risen. And I'm a witness of that. And Peter makes another statement about witness that has implications for us. In verse 42, he says that Jesus himself commanded the apostles to preach and to testify about him. Two words, preach, testify. They are not synonyms. They're similar, but they're not identical. And we need to know the difference between the two because that's going to affect our calling, or rather how we carry out our calling as witnesses. Preaching is the proclamation of the objective truth of the gospel. It tends to be more factual. So to state the historicity of Christ's birth, death, resurrection, and ascension. The historical facts of what happened, the work that he did, the things he preached. Testifying, on the other hand, is a, to relate the personal experience that I have had of Jesus' redemption, of his forgiveness, and of his salvation. Do you understand the difference? Let me illustrate it this way. You, well, just out of curiosity, how many in here have been to Foz do Guaçu? Go ahead, raise your hands. Let me just get an idea. Okay, a fair number of you, thanks. One could, without ever visiting Foz do Guaçu, do a lot of research, and they could relate that research to you. They could talk about the volume of water per minute that goes over those falls. They could describe and count how many falls there actually are, 
what countries meet right there at that point, what the rivers are involved, the geographical formations, geological formations that are associated with it. They could give you all these facts about it. That's like the preaching. And all, I'm sorry. That, yes, that's like the preaching. That's the true. But then that same person could say, and I've been there. Now let me describe to you the experience of being there. Standing out on that bridge, the water thundering so loudly that I can't even hear the people next to me speaking. The air is full of spray. I'm soaked to the skin. And I am in awe of the mighty power of the water that is surrounding me on every side. And I felt this big. Do you understand the difference between those two? One is objectively, historically based. The other is experiential. Now here's the point. When we're called to be witnesses as Peter was, and it's exactly what Peter says here, that Jesus commissioned Peter and the apostles, and by extension us, to preach and testify. Preach, to share the historical facts and truth about Jesus and who he was and what he did. And then to testify, to share our personal experience of being in relationship with Jesus, being transformed by him, being forgiven by him, being redeemed by him, being saved by him. These are both aspects of the gospel and we need both. We are in Peter's footsteps called to be witnesses of Christ. I hope you've heard that by now in Acts because Luke is going to keep emphasizing it. All right, brothers and sisters, finally we're getting to the fourth scene, the fourth and final scene, the joining. The joining. Peter is preaching. You know what the text says? It says, while he was still saying these words, the Holy Spirit came upon those present. Peter was just getting going. Peter was still warming up. He had another five pages in his outline for the sermon. Peter consistently talks about repentance. He hadn't gotten to repentance yet in the sermon. So he's, he's still warming up. He's still going. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes in and says, Peter, that's enough. They've got it. Sure, some of you wish that would happen more regularly here, right? Holy Spirit would say, okay, Nathaniel, stop. They got it. So Peter, let me back up. This is the only time in Acts that the Holy Spirit comes before baptism. It's unique in that way. Every other account that we have unique accounts of the Holy Spirit coming upon new believers, it happens after their baptism. And there is an order to this. There is an order, um, at least an order of importance. The Holy Spirit and his indwelling is more important than baptism. We see this because in, in this context, it goes from greater to lesser. Peter's response is, well, of course they should be baptized. baptized. They've already received the Holy Spirit. So what is the Holy Spirit's work in this context? The Holy Spirit is the evidence. 
He's the proof of the consummated confluence of these two rivers. Because the Holy Spirit is the proof of true saving faith in Jesus. Remember what Paul writes in Ephesians 1.14. The Holy Spirit is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance with the saints. God knows the hearts of everyone. And in, in evangelicalism in general, I think we make a big deal out of people praying the sinner's prayer as they come to Jesus. And while that's a good practice because it's objective in nature, it's not required for salvation. What's required is repentance and belief in Jesus, coming to him by faith, through grace, by faith. That's, that's salvation. And so God is sovereignly looking upon the hearts of these people in Cornelius' house, and he sees they've believed. They were on the verge already. They were God-fearers. They were thirsty. They were hungry. Cornelius was expecting. He'd brought them all together. And they hear the truth of Jesus, and their hearts are quickened immediately, and they believe. And God says, they've got it. Holy Spirit, it's your turn. Go, fill them. And Peter, I, I don't know what Peter was really doing, but I imagine going, oh, well, I'm, I'm not done yet. I'm not done yet. Wait. Okay. Okay, the Holy Spirit has come. The Holy Spirit is the proof that these two groups have been joined. Jesus is the unifier. The Holy Spirit is the seal, the evidence, the proof that this union has taken place. And once again, we see shock on the part of the Jewish believers who are present with Peter, don't we? It's interesting that Luke does not call them Jewish believers. He calls them circumcised believers in this context. And there's an emphasis he's making there. He's pointing to the future about the fact that circumcision is not going to be a requirement for coming to Jesus. So these circumcised believers who had traveled with Peter, they did not have the benefit of Peter's vision. They didn't see that sheet being lowered from, from heaven with all the animals in it and the voice of Jesus telling Peter to eat and Peter resisting and then, uh, they didn't know all that. So Peter was prepared, they weren't. What's their reaction when the Holy Spirit comes on the Gentiles? They're shocked, they're astonished. What? The Holy Spirit's on them too? But, but, they're, but, but they, they, they're not circumcised. They're not Jewish. Like, what, what's good? You mean, I'm not, I'm not that, I'm not that special? I'm not, I'm not that different? I, I, they're, we're the same? We're the same before God. I don't have special status before God. Really, God? Anyone? Anyone can come to you? Jesus died for everyone? Man, this is going like, to take a big adjustment. And it does. The word radical has been overused this is a radical redefinition of what it means to come to God. And we 
Brothers and sisters, listen to this. We are a fruit of this event. And one of the great joys that I have in serving and ministering at Calvary and having grown up here too is each Sunday morning to look around and look at the diversity of the people that God has made one in his body. Different races, different ethnicities, different cultural backgrounds, different nationalities, different shapes, different heights, different size families. And uh, you may not know it, but we actually have some people here this morning who are of Jewish heritage. And I know you do know that we have people here who have gen- or are of Gentile heritage. And God has joined us as one how? In Jesus Christ. The church is a direct result, or I should say the makeup of the church is a direct result of God's work in Peter and Cornelius. Two rivers parallel up until that point, always for all time, joined together now as one deeper flow of the church. Unified by Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his continued reign at the right hand of God the Father. Sealed and evidenced by the life of the Holy Spirit and each individual within the body. So where does this leave us today in 2021? In the church, there's only one source of unity, and that's Jesus Christ. So let's not accept any other false unifier. Let's not join ourselves to any other group or religion that minimizes or denies Jesus, because if Jesus is minimized or denied, God is not there. On the positive side, whoever surrenders to Christ, whoever comes to him in repentance and belief, is united with us as equal sharers in the grace of God. Paul famously writes, doesn't he, that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. He's not saying that those distinctions no longer exist, but he's saying that in Jesus, there's no hierarchy among them. One is no more valuable than the others in the eyes of Christ. Some do not have it easier to come to Christ than others. All have equal access to God through Jesus. We have no right to look down on anyone, to belittle anyone within the body, to hold ourselves above everyone else. We, it's very easy for us to create spiritual hierarchies with ourselves at the top. We don't have that right because we are all sinners saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ filled with the Spirit to be made one in Him in His church.